Welcome everyone to the Sutta study class. This afternoon we're going to study Majjhima Nikaya Sutta number 35. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami So today we're looking at the Chula Sachika Sutta, the shorter discourse to Sachika. And being the month of May, when we celebrate the birth, enlightenment and parinibbana of the Buddha, the reason why the Buddha is the Sama Sambhuta is because Through his enlightenment and his wisdom, out of his compassion, he teaches us the Dharma. And the teaching that is contained in this uh, sutta today contains the teaching which the Buddha gave to his first five disciples, after which they became enlightened. And they were the first ones to be able to become enlightened through following his uh, Dharma. So... This is the opportunity for all of us this afternoon to celebrate Vesak in a really uh, meaningful way by hearing the teaching and then becoming enlightened by the end of the afternoon. <clears throat> so this is the shorter discourse to Sachika and uh, you'll notice if you've looked through the Majjhimani Kaya but that the next uh, sutta, number su- 36 is the longer discourse to Sachika. And uh, we'll start with just reading through and then I'll explain it as I uh, go along. Sutta number 35, if anyone's just arrived. <laughs> Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Vesali in the great wood in the hall with the peaked roof. Now, Vesali is in uh, north east, eastern part of the middle country, and this is uh, the place where the Buddha, when he first went there, chanted the Ratana Sutta when there was uh, a famine and uh, a lot of uh, death in Vesali, and uh, when people were uh, being plagued by. Uh, spirits and having a very terrible time and the Buddha chanted the Ratana Sutta. And so uh, through his chanting and through the fact that uh, all of the difficulties started to subside after his uh, appearance there, uh, he would have had very high standing in that uh, country, in that part of the country. The people who uh, were aware of what took place would have been... uh, Uh, very um, devoted to him. But this uh, 
particular episode takes place in Vesali, uh, but you can see that even though the Buddha's standing would have been very high with some uh, people in the community, it wasn't uh, universal. Now on that occasion, Sachika, the Niganta's son, was staying at Vesali, a debater and a clever speaker regarded by many as a saint. So in the time of the Buddha as now, there are many different religious teachers in India and they wander from place to place as the Buddha did and so this is some time later that another teacher has come into Vaisali and he is Sachika the Naganta's son and the uh, notes say that both his parents were highly regarded followers of the Jains that's another word for Naganta Mahavira's disciples Mahavira was the teacher of the Jains and his disciples were referred to as the Nigantas and Sachika's parents were both followers of the Jains and were very skilled uh, philosophers and debaters and they trained uh, Sachika in the sort of uh, training that they'd had so he also was a very uh, highly skilled a debater, a philosopher, and through his lifestyle of the Jain, the special emphasis on harmlessness, uh, he was considered a saint. But uh, when we see what uh, transpires, we can see that uh, even though he was uh, practicing harmlessness, there was still uh, uh, his use of speech was always was also not always so uh, harmless. So Sachika, the Naganta's son, was staying at Vaisali, a debater and a clever speaker, regarded by many as a saint. He was making this statement before the Vaisali assembly. I see no recluse or Brahmin, the head of an order, the head of a group, the teacher of a group, even one claiming to be accomplished and fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver and tremble and sweat under the armpits if he were to engage in debate with me. Even if I were to engage a senseless post in debate, it would shake, shiver and tremble if it were to engage in debate with me. So what shall I say of a human being? So he's making very grand claims. Then when it was morning, the venerable Asaji, dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Vesali for arms. And Venerable Asaji was one of the Buddha's first five disciples, the disciples who became enlightened after hearing this teaching. As Satchika, the Niganta's son, was walking and wandering for exercise in Vesali, he saw the Venerable Asaji coming in the distance and went up to him and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, Satchika, the Niganta's son, stood at one side and said to him, Master Asaji, how does the recluse Gotama discipline his disciples and how is the recluse Gotama's instructions usually presented to his disciples? This is how the Blessed One disciplines his disciples, Agivesana. Now this is his clan name. His uh, personal name is Sachika. His clan name is Agivesana. Agi Vesana, which I have a lot of difficulty with, so if I revert to calling him Sachika, you'll know it's because I get my tongue twisted around his uh, 
his clan name. <clears throat> and this is how the Blessed One's instruction is usually presented to his disciples. Because material form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. These are the five aggregates, <clears throat> the five khandhas, what the uh, material and mental aspects of a being which uh, the Buddha teaches comprise uh, a, human, a human being, a living being, uh, nothing uh, apart from this. Because material form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent, all things are not self. And this is the standard uh, uh, <coughs> declaration of two of the three characteristics of existence. And the third characteristic, which is usually included, is that uh, all things are dukkha. But uh, that is left out here, and the commentary says it's because Venerable Asaji didn't want to give uh, Satchika something else to uh, get into an argument about what's suffering and what's not suffering. That is how the Blessed Ones disciplines his disciple, Venerable Asaji said, and that is how the Blessed Ones' instruction is usually presented to his disciples. This is Satchika speaking. If this is what the recluse Gotama asserts, we hear indeed what is disagreeable. Perhaps some time or other we might meet Master Gotama and have some conversation with him. Perhaps we might detach him from that evil view. And so Satchika uh, is going to uh, try to show the Buddha how he's uh, wrong. And you can see that he is not a disciple of the Buddha because he calls him recluse Gotama, Master Gotama. Now at that time, 500 Dichibis had met together in an assembly hall for some business or others. And Vesali was a confederacy, it wasn't a monarchy, so the uh, nobles, uh, the people who were considered to be um, part of the electorate, met together to make important decisions uh, that would govern the uh, confederacy. Then Satchika, the Niganta's son, went to them and said, Come forth, good Lichavis, come forth. Today there will be some conversation between me and the recluse Gotama. If the recluse Gotama maintains before me what was maintained before me by one of his famous disciples, the bhikkhu named Asaji, then just as a strong man might seize a long head rammed, rammed by the hair and drag him to and fro, drag him fro and drag him round about, so in debate I will drag the recluse Gotama too and drag him fro and drag him round about. Just as a strong brewer's workman might throw a big brewer's sieve into a deep water tank and taking it by the corners, drag it too and drag it fro and drag it round about, so in debate I will drag the recluse Gotama too and drag him fro and drag him round about. Just as a strong brewer's mix, mixer might make, take a strainer by the corners and shake it down and shake it up and thump it about. So in debate I will shake the recluse Gotama down and shake him up and thump him about. And just as a 60-year elephant 
might plunge into a deep pond and enjoy playing the game of hemp washing, so I shall enjoy playing the game of hemp washing with the recluse Gotama. And the game of hemp washing was bashing the hemp to and fro to soften it up. And uh, for the elephant to play that game, he uh, takes water in his trunk and uh, swishes it around and throws it all over the place. And that's what Satchika says he's going to do to the recluse Gotama in debate. <coughs> Thereupon, some literally said, how can the recluse Gotama refute Satchika, the Niganta's son's assertions? On the contrary, Satchika, the Niganta's son, will refute the recluse Gotama's assertions. And some Lichibi said, Who is the Satchika, the Niganta's son, that he could refute the Blessed One's assertions? On the contrary, the Blessed One will refute Satchika, the Niganta's son's assertions. Then Satchika, the Niganta's son, went with 500 Lichibis to the hall with the peaked roof in the great wood. So you see that some of the Lichavis had doubt about the Buddha being uh, able to beat uh, Satchika in debate. Others were confident that the Buddha would uh, be able to refute Satchika's assertions. And when we see 500 as a number of the 500 Lichavis, that doesn't necessarily mean exactly 500. It just means a large crowd. So a large crowd of Lichavis were meeting together and now a large crowd of Lichavis are going with Satchika to visit the Buddha in the peaked roof in the Great Wood. <clears throat> now on that occasion, a number of bhikkhus were walking up and down in the open. Then Satchika, the Niganta's son, went up to them and asked, Where is Master Gotama staying now, sirs? We want to see Master Gotama. The Blessed One has entered the great wood, Agivesana, and is sitting at the root of a tree for the day's abiding. Then Satchika the Niganta's son, together with a large following of Lichavis, entered the great wood and went to the Blessed One. He exchanged greetings with the Blessed One, and after this courteous and amiable talk was finished, sat down at one side. Some of the Lichavis paid homage to the Blessed One and sat down at one side. Some exchanged greetings with him, and when this courteous and amiable talk was finished, sat down at one side. Some extended their hands in reverential salutation towards the Blessed One and sat down at one side. Some pronounced their name and clan in the Blessed One's presence and sat down at one side, and some kept silent and sat down at one side. And this is a standard passage for describing the different ways in which people uh, greeted the Buddha, and to give uh, an example of the range of uh, relationship that they had with the Buddha, the Buddha as their teacher or the Buddha as someone they respected or the Buddha that they weren't too sure about. When Satchika, the Niganta's son, had sat down, he said to the Blessed One, I would like to question Master Gotama on a certain point if Master Gotama would grant me the favour of an answer to the question. Ask what you like, Agivesana. Now, does Master Gotama discipline? How, how does Master Gotama discipline his disciples, and how is Master Gotama's instruction usually presented to his disciples? This is how I discipline my disciples, Agivesana, and this is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples, because material form is impermanent. 
feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, formations are impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Because material form is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. All formations are impermanent, all things are not self. That is the way I discipline my disciples and that is how my instruction is usually presented to my disciples. A simile occurs to me, Master Gotama. Explain how it occurs to you, Agivesana, the Blessed One said. Just as when seeds and plants, whatever their kind, reach growth, increase and maturation, all do so in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth, and just as when strenuous works, whatever their kind, are done, all are done in dependence upon the earth, based upon the earth, so too, Master Gotama, a person has material form as self, and based upon material form, he produces merit or demerit. A person has feeling as self, and based upon feeling, he produces merit or demerit. A person has perception as self, and based upon perception, he produces merit or demerit. A person has formations as self, and based upon formations, he produces merit or demerit. A person has consciousness as self, and based upon consciousness, he produces merit or demerit. Agivesana, are you not asserting thus, and this is the Buddha asking him a question, Material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, consciousness is myself. I assert thus, Master Gotama, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, consciousness is myself, and so does this great multitude. So, Agivesana is saying that I do believe that this body is myself, that my feelings are myself, all of the aggregates, and so does everyone else here. And because everyone else believes it, it must be true. And the Buddha replies, What has this great multitude to do with you, Agivesana? Please confine yourself to your own assertion alone. Then, Master Gotama, I assert thus, material form is myself, feeling is myself, perception is myself, formations are myself, and consciousness is myself. And so he's saying the basis for his assertion that his body is his self and that feeling and all the other aggregates are his self is that just like when you plant something, you need the earth as the basis for it, that the body is the basis for doing things and that the body is the basis for all these uh, aspects of uh, mind which experience things. So with the consciousness, for example, that you need the uh, sense basis to receive the input that's on the body. The body is the foundation for all of those things which arise through contact, the feeling and the perception, the mental formations and that without the body you don't have those things. And so the body is the self and all of these other things because they arise in dependence on the body 
are also the self. And then the Buddha goes on to question him. In that case, Agivesana, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you choose. What do you think, Agivesana? Would a head-anointed noble king, for example, King Pasenadi of Kosala, or King Adjasatu Vehidi, Vehidi, it's another one of those words I can't pronounce, so just uh, bear with me, Vehidihiputa of Magadha, and you can expect I'll just leave it out from now on. Uh, so <clears throat> would a head-anointed noble king, for example, King Pasenadi of Kosala, or King Adjasatu of Magadha, exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed or to find those who should be fined and to banish those who should be banished. Master Gotama, a head-anointed noble king, for example, King Pasenadi of Kosala or King Ajasatu of Magadha, would exercise the power in his own realm to execute those who should be executed, to find those who should be fined and to banish those who should be banished. For even these oligarchic communities and societies such as the Vajans and the Malians exercise the power in their own realm to execute those who should be executed and to fine those who should be fined and to banish those who should be banished. So all the more so should a head-anointed noble king such as King Pasandadi of Kosala or King Ajasatu of Magadha he would exercise it, Master Gotama, and he would be worthy to exercise it. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say thus, material form is myself, do you exercise any such power over that material form as to say, let my th- form be thus, let my form not be thus? When this was said, Sachika, the Niganta's son, was silent. A second time the Blessed One asked the same question and a second time Sachika the Niganta's son was silent. Then the Blessed One said to him, Agivesana, answer now. Now is not the time to be silent. If anyone when asked a reasonable question up to the third time by the Tathagata still does not answer, his head splits into seven pieces there and then. So the Buddha is asking uh, Sachika, if you say that your body is you, this is my body, this is myself, are you able to exercise mastery over this form, over this body, and do with it what you like, have it be the way that you want it to be, in the same way that the uh, rulers of kingdoms can decide who's going to live and who's going to die, who's going to be uh, favoured and who's not going to be favoured. Do you have the same uh, capacity to do that, to wield that mastery over this body? And uh, Sachika is silent because uh, he cannot say that he has that uh, power. Now on that occasion, a thunderbolt-wielding spirit holding an iron thunderbolt that burned, blazed and glowed, appeared in the air above Sachika the Niganta's son, thinking, if this Sachika the Niganta's son, when asked a reasonable question up to the third time by the Blessed One, still does not answer, I shall split his head into seven pieces here and now. 
Um, and this is said to be uh, Saka, the king of the gods. And uh, I'm not really familiar with this kind of uh, presentation that if someone uh, doesn't answer a, a question put to them by the Tathagata um, up to the third time, a reasonable question, that uh, their head will be split in seven pieces. So I can't really comment on its inclusion here. The Blessed One saw the thunderbolt-wielding spirit and so did Satchika the Niganta's son. Then Satchika the Niganta's son was frightened, alarmed and terrified. Seeking his shelter, asylum and refuge in the Blessed One, he said, Ask me, Master Gotama, I will answer. So rather than uh, having to think that he's uh, threatened with having his head split open, and I can't comment on, on that, but you can uh, imagine that because he uh, began this conversation claiming that he would be able to really uh, better the uh, Buddha in debate, and that was his uh, specialty, that now he's been asked a question that he finds difficult to answer, that uh, he's feeling uh, very embarrassed. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say thus, material form is myself, do you exercise any such power over that material form as to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? No, Master Gotama. Pay attention, Agivesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards, nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say, thus, feeling is myself, do you exercise any power over that feeling as to say, let my feeling be thus, let my feeling not be thus? No, Master Gotama. And this is something that uh, we experience from our practice when we are able to be mindful of the arising uh, and appearance of feeling as a result of contact with uh, sense uh, objects, that the feeling arises whether we like it or not. We can't stop it from arising. And it arises dependent on our previous experience with that uh, kind of object or kind of situation. It's not a feeling that we can uh, decide what kind we want, a pleasant one or an unpleasant one. It just arises dependent on conditions, not according to our, uh, our choice. Pay attention, Agivesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards, nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say thus, perception is myself? Do you exercise any power over that perception as to say, let my perception be thus, let my perception not be thus? No, Master Gotama. Perception arises as a result of sense contact. When sense consciousness arises, there is feeling and perception. That perception includes our memory of that uh, sense object or that situation as being of a particular kind, learning to uh, identify it and uh, 
put it into a category according on to our previous experience with it. And again, that perception arises dependent on conditions, not through our willpower. And perception arises uh, directly, uh, not... Uh, uh, we can't stop that perception arising while ever there is sense consciousness taking place. Pay attention, Agivesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards, nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say thus, formations are myself? Do you exercise any such power over those formations as to say, let my formations be thus, let my formations not be thus? No, Master Gotama. Now with the formations, the mental formations, what we uh, realise is that through practising mindfulness and through uh, clear comprehension of the consequences of the mental formations that we uh, give rise to, that we can start to, to actually take control over mental formations. Mental formations are not arising uh, uh, just automatically, just naturally, as perception and feeling are, but it's only through developing the mind that we start to have control over our thoughts, start to have control over our willpower, start to have uh, control about the direction in which we're going to go with our uh, thought, our speech and our behaviour. And uh, in the next uh, sutta, sutta number 36, when Satchika is talking about his understanding of the development of the mind, we will see that in his uh, practice, in his cultivation, that his uh, understanding of what can be achieved in the cultivation of the mind is very limited. And so uh, at this point in his practice not having been exposed to the Buddha's teaching, he's uh, not able to say that he has control over his reactions to what he experiences. And that's what we're really talking about with mental formations. We're talking about the thinking that arises dependent on sense contact, the thinking that arises dependent on feeling, the thinking that arises dependent on perception. So when we come in contact with something and automatically there's a feeling pleasant or unpleasant that arises and we recognise this is a sound and then we recognise that it's the sound of a bird, for example, and then we go on to uh, recognise it's a pleasant or an unpleasant feeling and we like it and we don't like it or we want it or we don't want it and then all the uh, thinking or proliferation that goes on about trying to get what we like and to avoid what we don't like. And uh, that's the process that uh, arises naturally. But once we start to be mindful of this process and understand it, even if we have an unpleasant feeling arising, for example, and we don't like it, we learn to bear with that uh, unpleasant feeling because we know that it will pass away. It's impermanent. That it doesn't have to be... Uh, the basis for making an action, a thought, a speech or an action based on it. And so we start to take control of our uh, mental formations. So verse 19, Pay attention, Agivesana, pay attention how you reply. 
What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards, nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agivesana, when you say thus, Consciousness is myself? Do you exercise any such power over that consciousness as to say, Let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus? No, Master Gotama. And so again in this consciousness, when we're talking about sense consciousness arising, if we have uh, sense bases that are working, and if we come in contact with sense objects in the environment, and if the conditions are right, then sense consciousness will arise. There will be a knowing of that object at that sense door. So for a sound to be heard, there has to be an ear that's working, there has to be the vibration in the environment, there has to be not too much other sound, other vibration going on, so that that uh, uh, individual or particular sound vibration can be picked up, and there has to be some paying attention to it in order for sense consciousness to arise. And if those conditions are met, then that sense consciousness will arise, whether we like it or not. And so we know that when we're sitting here trying to watch the breath or listen to the talk and the dog starts barking next door, we can't uh, avoid hearing the dog even if we don't want to give it our full attention. And then when the dog starts to bark, we can notice that immediately because the dogs bark so many other times, if, we're, uh, not, uh, uh, if we haven't been working to be equanimous or to give loving kindness to the dog or uh, to withdraw our attention, we might find an unpleasant feeling arising because we feel the irritation. What we say is that uh, irritation is the started off by that sense consciousness, the hearing consciousness taking place, the contact that produced the sense consciousness produces a feeling. We identify it as unpleasant and it's that dog. It's a dog barking. And then the mental formation says, that damn dog it always barks at this time. I'm sure that it sets its alarm for three o'clock every Saturday and Sunday afternoon. Then we go on and on and on. This is a sort of thing that happens. So the sound is there whether we like it or not. But where we can start to train the mind is to be equanimous to the arising of that sense contact, to the hearing consciousness that, that arises. We simply know hearing consciousness and we don't take it any further. We don't follow the feeling, we don't follow the perception and we don't follow the mental formation. And if we are... Uh, practicing uh, deeply in uh, meditation, then we may get to a point where we are not in contact with uh, the five sense bases. We may not uh, hear things or feel things. We may not uh, be aware of smells because the mind, the consciousness, is absorbed in the mind at that time. We also know that if uh, we are paying attention to something not even in meditation, something that we are really interested in and we're absorbed in, that someone might walk by or we might uh, 
There might be a sound going on around us and we don't hear it because we're not paying attention to that. We're giving our whole attention to the task that we're involved in. So in this way, it's the sense consciousness is arising or not arising dependent on causes and conditions. And when we become uh, uh, skilled in our meditation, we can say, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness not be thus, but only temporarily because it's the nature of this uh, mind and body, these five khandhas, that when we're not in deep meditation, then the sense bases will be operating again and the whole process uh, will be put in uh, uh, action again, whether we like it or not. When there's consciousness, these things just arise uh, naturally. See, the dogs are just barking to illustrate the point. <clears throat> so pay attention, Agivesana, pay attention how you reply. What you said before does not agree with what you said afterwards, nor does what you said afterwards agree with what you said before. What do you think, Agivesana? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, Master Gotama. What do you think, Agivesana, is feeling permanent or impermanent? Is perception permanent or impermanent? Are formations permanent or impermanent? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Master Gotama. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, Master Gotama. And so if you remember that Sachika was saying that the body is self and that everything else depends on the body. And if the body is not self because it's impermanent and not controllable, then all those things, the mental aspects which depend on uh, the body, can also not be regarded as uh, self. And if in the uh, context of wielding mastery over something, if it's truly myself, then it should be able to uh, continue, one should be able to continue to uh, determine how that thing is going to be. But the fact that this body and uh, all of the sense bases and the mind that arises dependent on it are all impermanent. This cannot be a self because we don't wield mastery over it. It's not something that we can regard as myself because we don't uh, have control, absolute control over it. And if we think that uh, something is pleasant, then it's suffering when that pleasant thing disappears. If it's suffering and we're happy that it's uh, disappearing, it's impermanent, that is uh, happiness temporarily, but we can't be sure that that thing is not going to return or re-arise because uh, we have no control over it. Its nature is to come into being uh, outside of our control. And so this is why what is uh, impermanent suffering and subject to change 
is not fit to be, be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself. What do you think, Agivesana, when one adheres to suffering, resorts to suffering, holds to suffering and regards what is suffering? Thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. Could one ever fully understand suffering oneself or abide with suffering utterly destroyed? And so the Buddha is saying if you have this wrong understanding and what you're holding on to as yourself is actually the source of suffering or has the seeds of suffering within it because it is outside your control, you can't uh, be sure that it's going to uh, do what you want it to do. You can't control it. If you're hanging on to that and identifying with that as uh, yourself, you're hanging on to suffering. And if you haven't seen that as the source of your suffering, how could you ever hope to get beyond suffering? How could one master Gotama know master Gotama? <clears throat> what do you think, Agivesana, that being so, do you not adhere to suffering, resort to suffering, hold to suffering, and regard what is suffering thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. How could I not, Master Gotama? Yes, Master Gotama. <clears throat> so he is admitting that he was holding on to what was suffering. Uh, <clears throat> now the notes say that the next section is not included in all of the uh, versions that we have of the Pali Canon, but it is uh, included in the uh, uh, translation on which this... Uh, on, on the Pali version that this particular translation was uh, done on. So I'll continue to read that. It is though a person needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, were to take a sharp axe and enter the wood, and there he would see a large plantain trunk, straight, young, with no fruit bud or core. Then he would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and unroll the leaf sheets. But Sheaths. But as he went on unrolling the leaf sheaths, he would never come even to any sapwood, let alone heartwood. So too, Agivesana, when you are pressed, questioned and cross-questioned by me about your own assertion, you turn out to be empty, vacant and mistaken. But it was you who made this statement before the Vaisali assembly. I see no recluse or Brahman, the head of an order, the head of a group, the teacher of a group, even one claiming to be accomplished and fully enlightened, who would not shake, shiver and tremble and sweat under the armpits if he were to engage in debate with me. Even if I were to engage a senseless post in debate, it would shake, shiver and tremble if it were to engage in debate with me. So what shall I say of a human being? Now there are drops of sweat on your forehead and they have soaked through your upper robe and fallen to the ground. But there is no sweat on my body now. And the Blessed One uncovered his golden-coloured body before the assembly. When this was said, Sachika the Niganta's son sat silent, dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. So whether the Buddha actually uh, wanted to show Sachika that he uh, had been beaten in defeat, showing him in this way, uh, there was uh, no doubt that he had uh, shown uh, Sachika's uh, 
proposition to be uh, empty. And uh, just to, well, just continue with this for the moment. Then Dumuka, the son of the Lichavis, seeing Sachika, the Ganta's son, in such a condition, said to the Blessed One, A simile occurs to me, Master Gotama. Explain how it occurs to you, Dumuka. Suppose, Venerable Sir, not far from a village town there was a pond with a crab in it, and then a party of boys and girls went out from the town or village to the pond, went into the water and pulled the crab out of the water and put it on dry land, and whenever the crab extended a leg, they cut it off, broke it off, and smashed it off with sticks and stones, so that the crab with all its legs cut off, broken and smashed, would be unable to get back to the pond as before. So too all Sachika the Niganta's son's contortions, writhings and vacillations have been cut off, broken and smashed by the Blessed One, and now he cannot get near the Blessed One again for the purpose of debate. When this was said, Sachika the Niganta's son told him, Wait, Dumika, wait. We are not speaking with you. Here we are speaking with Master Gotama. So the uh, crowd of Lichavis that he was trying to impress are not impressed uh, with Sachika, but he's telling them uh, not to get involved in this discussion. And then uh, Sachika said, Let that talk of ours be, Master Gotama. Like that of ordinary recluses and Brahmins, it was mere prattle, I think. But in what way is a disciple of the recluse Gotama, one who carries out his instruction, who responds to his advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation? And so Sachika, having beaten, being beaten in debate on the point that he was talking about, now has changed the subject so that uh, he can uh, get out of the situation of having uh, uh, been beaten in debate by the Buddha. And uh, before we go on, I just uh, remind you that this teaching which the Buddha gave is the teaching that he gave in the discourse on non-self, the characteristics of non-self to his first five disciples. And it's uh, a standard way of explaining these five aggregates, the, the body aggregate, the form, the rupa, and the mind aggregate, the mental aggregate, the uh, feeling, the vedana, the sanya, the perception, the uh, sankara, the mental formations, and the vijnana, the consciousness. And dividing these up and seeing how each one of them is uh, impermanent, uh, not under uh, control, and uh, is therefore not fit to be taken to be me. And in the first teaching which the Buddha uh, gave on this to the five disciples, he goes uh, a little bit further in just explaining uh, this, so I'll just uh, read this through. This is found in the Vinya Pitika. Because material form is not self. If material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction. And it could be had of material form. Let my material form be thus. Let my material form not be thus. And it is because material form is not self that it, is theref that it therefore leads to affliction and that it cannot be had of material form. Let my material form be thus. 
let my material form not be thus. Now the most obvious example of this is the way that the body gets sick, whether we like it or not. The way the body ages, whether we like it or not. The way the appearance of the body changes, whether we like it or not. Whether the energy level in, in the body, the way the energy level in the body changes, whether we like it or not. All of these things occur out of our control. We can control them to some extent by looking after the body, looking, making sure it gets the right nourishment, that it gets the right rest, we protect it from the cold and the heat, doing all those things and within limits we can make some uh, adjustments to the body. But uh, basically we can't uh, change its nature. And eventually, either from internal uh, conditions or from external conditions, this body is going to be uh, destroyed going to break up, no longer function and that is out of our control. So it leads to affliction because it isn't under our control. It cannot be called myself because we don't wield mastery over it. And feeling is not self, perception is not self, formations are not self, consciousness is not self. If consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction it could be had of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. And it is because consciousness is not self that is therefore that it therefore leads to affliction, and that it cannot be had of consciousness. Let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness be not thus. So even for uh, an enlightened being who can, uh, or for any great meditator, who can remove themselves from uh, contact with the physical world through enjoying deep meditation, uh, who can uh, uh, be absent from this body in the sense of not being in contact with the sense bases and the senses, still, while they are a living, they have to come out from time to time to uh, be... Uh, in ordinary states of consciousness and then at that time the uh, the body aches and one may not get upset by the aches in the body but there are still aches and pains and the Buddha said how he enjoys these uh, states of uh, consciousness uh, uh, access through meditation as a way of being uh, absent from the aches and pains in the body it's not that those aches and pains just disappear once you're enlightened, but you're no longer uh, attaching to them, you're no longer identifying with them, but they're still there. That's why the body is dukkha, even the body of the enlightened one. <clears throat> so consciousness is still uh, not under control, under one's control, and is uh, affliction, leads to affliction. How do you conceive this because is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, Lord. But is what is impermanent, unpleasant or pleasant? Unpleasant, Lord. But is it fitting to regard what is impermanent, unpleasant and subject to change as this is mine, this is what I am, this is myself? No, Lord. How do you conceive this? Is feeling permanent? Is perception permanent? Is formation, are formations permanent? Is consciousness permanent? They're all impermanent, Lord. But is what is impermanent unpleasant or pleasant? Unpleasant, Lord. 
is what is fitting is it fitting to regard what is impermanent unpleasant and subject to change as this is mine this is what i am this is myself no lord therefore because any material form whatsoever whether past future or present in oneself or external coarse or fine inferior or superior far or near should all be regarded as it actually is by right understanding that this is not mine this is not what i am this is not myself any feeling whatsoever any perception any formations any consciousness whatsoever whether past future or present in oneself or external coarse or fine inferior or superior far or near should all be regarded as it actually is by right understanding thus this is not mine this is not what i am this is not myself now in seeing this we're talking about taking these things to be who we are it's not that they don't exist but they exist in a a way other than how we conceive of them they exist they come into being they stay they pass away they arise again while ever the conditions are there for them to exist they exist and they exist over time there's continuity and so because of that continuity we take it to be something that's permanent when in fact it's changing all the time so again this body which seems to be permanent because there's continuity but if we uh, contemplate the fact that we change the outer appearance of this body changes radically over the course of our life it's very hard to discern that change as it's taking place in a nanosecond but each nanosecond it is changing and only only after a year or two or 5 years or whatever we see clearly the change that's been taking place but because we don't see the change as it's taking place we conceive of this body as being permanent when in fact there's change happening moment by moment and so it's not that these aggregates do not exist but the way that we understand them to exist is inaccurate and that's where the suffering comes in because we think that we have control so for example we think that we eat all the right things and do the right exercise and look after this body and then we get sick and we say it's not fair because i've been doing all the right things and we hear that again and again or i'm a good person this sort of illness shouldn't come to me it's wrongly um apprehending these things taking them to be something that they're not thinking that we know all the reasons or all the conditions or all the factors that give rise to this body or this mind when we can only know some of them we don't know all of them and because we don't know all of them we wrongly assume that we're in control that we've got a handle on it so the buddha says seeing that all these things are not mine not what i am and not myself 
Seeing thus bhikkhus, a wise noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards material form, becomes dispassionate towards feeling, becomes dispassionate towards perception, becomes dispassionate towards formations, becomes dispassionate towards consciousness. And this dispassionate, this nibbida, means that one starts to get fed up with this. One is no longer infatuated with it. One no longer thinks it's so great. And of course, when we look in the magazines and we see all these beautiful bodies and these successful people and all of those things, we look at them with infatuation. And we forget that we're being presented with a lie. That body that's there, we're seeing an appearance of things that is not really the truth. If we uh, think about all the time and effort that goes into getting just the right look on that uh, model, whatever it is, whether it's a human being or the latest model car or computer or whatever, and the airbrushing that goes on to create the image that's uh, most agreeable to uh, people that will be uh, fulfilling the latest expectations of what should be there, what looks good, how things should be. When we start to realise all of that deception that's going on and we see this deception happens not even when people actually intend it, but just the way that we look at the body, our own body, still just hoping that it's not the truth, that it's changing heading for old age whether we like it or not, heading for sickness whether we like it or not. Temporarily being abled, temporarily being healthy. When we start to see these things clearly, we get fed up with the whole thing, the whole game. And we start to be more realistic. We do this because we need to. We have to eat. We have to look after the body. We've got this uh, vehicle for the time of this life so we cherish it we look after it we care for it but we know its limitations whatever it is we know its limitations and because we become dispassionate towards it then <coughs> lust for it fades away and this is said to be the path moment when uh, this real uh, dispassion gives rise to the, the fading away of infatuation, the fading away of uh, identification with me as being this body, me as being anything that arises dependent on this body. With the fading away of this identification, with the fading away of this uh, sense of ownership over this uh, body, then the heart is liberated and when liberated there comes the knowledge it is liberated. So at the time of stream entry when one breaks through the uh, deception that these things which come together and are constantly in a state of flux and flow, this body-mind complex is actually permanent, is actually under my control, is actually who I am, then to that extent there is a sense of uh, the fading away of uh, lust, identification. There is the uh, deep knowing that this has been a deception and one sees that clearly. And to that extent one is liberated. But uh, if one sees through right to the end of uh, any sort of uh, desire or thirsting after, 
existence in any form, then one is completely liberated. And in this particular teaching which the Buddha was giving to the first five disciples, when uh, one is liberated, one understands birth is exhausted, the holy life has been lived, and what has to be done is done, and there's no more of this to come. And in this teaching, that is what the Blessed One said, and the bhikkhus of the group of five were glad, and they delighted in his words. Now while this discourse was being delivered, the hearts of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from taints through not clinging. And there were then six arahants, six accomplished ones, including the Buddha, in the world. So that was when the Buddha first gave that teaching and it resulted in the enlightenment of the first five disciples. So he's given this uh, teaching and uh, Sachika has heard the teaching and he's even discounting it. Not only did he not uh, uh, get enlightened, he's not even interested to uh, uh, take uh, refuge in the Buddha as his teacher and to uh, uh, follow this path. Instead, he wants to change the subject so he doesn't look as though he's been uh, beaten in the debate. And so he asks the Buddha, um, in what way is a disciple of the recluse Gotama, one who carries out his instruction, who responds to his advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become thief, free from perplexity, gained intrepidity and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. And this means, how does a disciple of the Buddha become uh, someone who's uh, entered the stream or become uh, someone on the path? And what he has described, one who responds to the Buddha's advice and has crossed beyond doubt, is free from perplexity, gained intrepidity and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. This is the description of the stream winner, someone who has seen the truth of the teaching for themselves, has not become fully liberated, maybe even not even more than a stream winner. They may be a, a, a once returner or a non-returner, but they haven't become fully enlightened. But because they have experienced for themselves the truth of the teaching, they are no longer depending on anyone else to uh, convince them of the teaching. They've gone beyond doubt. So the Buddha says if one wants to attain that state, this is what you have to do. And he repeats the teaching he gave to the first five disciples. Here, Agivesana, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a disciple of mine sees all material form as it actually is, with proper wisdom thus. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Any kind of feeling, whatever, any kind of perception, any kind of formations, any kind of consciousness, whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a disciple of mine sees all consciousnesses as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. It is in this way that a disciple of mine is one who carries out my instruction, 
who responds to my advice, who has crossed beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity and become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation. So for us who are practicing this path, whenever we come to a point where we are stuck by assuming that what we are feeling or what we are thinking or what we are taking to be a self, we examine it in this way. Anything that we take to be mine, anything that we take to be who we really are, we examine it to see, is it permanent or impermanent? Is it under my control? Is it causally arisen? Is it something that is internal or external? If it, is it gross or subtle? So when we think about what is gross or subtle, we can think about those uh, states of meditation which we may attain and which we may think, oh, this is who I really am. This is me, the real me, the developed me. Now I've uncovered uh, my, my good self or my better self or any of those things, my higher self. All of these things still fall under one of these categories. And so it's at the point where we find ourselves stuck, holding firmly to a belief, holding firmly to a viewpoint, holding firmly to something which we consider to be me, or when we find that what we thought was me is being uh, disturbed, uh, annihilated, gotten, getting rid of, uh, being changed in a way that we don't like it. We ask ourselves, is this within those categories or is this something out of it? And whatever we look at, we will find that it comes within these categories which the Buddha says, whatever material form, whatever feeling, whatever perception, <clears throat> whatever consciousness, whatever mental formation is not me, is not mine, is not fit to be considered, this is myself. But it's at the point of our actual experience that we need to do that kind of investigation. If we just read it over and over again, it still won't come home to us until we apply it in our actual experience of life. So, for example, the other night someone was saying to me after the talk, you talked about the body um, not being under our control, but I know when I'm in a good state of mind, when I meditate well, that uh, my body is relaxed and at ease and I don't have any trouble with it. So, you know, there I am controlling my body. And I said, yes, that's true, but it's only temporary because when you're not in a good mood, when you're not feeling fine, when you haven't had a good meditation, what's your body like then? Oh, well, then it's aching and then it's not comfortable. And then I, yes, yeah, so it's not something that you are permanently able to control even when you are able to do those kinds of meditations. And so you have to see that whatever we take to be absolutely is just uh, conditionally limited. And that's where we see that it can't be truly myself, it can't be truly who I am because it isn't constant, it isn't unchanging. And that's what the Buddha is pointing to. It's not that there isn't this personality or these five aggregates coming together to... Uh, produce a being of some kind but it is not an essential unchanging uh, self 
over which we have control and which we can uh, make to be the way that we like it to be. So Satchika receives this teaching and then he goes on further. Master Gotama, in what way is a bhikkhu an arahant with taints, taints destroyed, one who has lived the whole of life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being and being is completely liberated through final knowledge. So how, how is one an arahant? Here, Agivesana, any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu has seen all material form as it actually is with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And through not clinging, he is liberated. And this is the essential sentence Through not clinging, he is liberated. Any kind of feeling, perception, formations, any kind of consciousness, past or past, future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a bhikkhu has seen all consciousness as it actually is with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. And through not clinging, he is liberated. And the not clinging comes from the gradual training so that one becomes dispassionate, one gets fed up with the things that one has been identifying with, that one has been uh, attaching to, that one has been uh, associating oneself with. One gets fed up with them again and again and again. One sees through them. Through that dispassion, then the, uh, the lust starts to fade the attachment, the clinging starts to fade, one gives up because one sees ultimately these things follow their own nature, not my wishes, not my ideas and because of that, not clinging, there is liberation. It is in this way that a bhikkhu is an arahat with taints destroyed, one who has lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached the true goal, destroyed the fetters of being and is completely liberated through final knowledge. When a bhikkhu's mind is thus liberated, he possesses three unsurpassable qualities, unsurpassable vision, unsurpassable practice of the way and unsurpassable deliverance. Now in this case it's worth looking at the notes in the back because uh, <clears throat> unsurpassable means that it can't be bettered, that it can't be overturned, that it can't be changed. So the unsurpassable vision that one sees things as they really are, that one has uh, received the fruits of the practice and that one is now bound uh, not to be born again at the passing away of this body, so at the uh, uh, Parinibbana. But according to the note, the commentary gives several alternative explanations of these three terms. They are mundane and super-mundane wisdom. So the mundane wisdom, for example, can be where one starts to uh, realise that uh, things that you thought you're in control of, you aren't control, in control of, and you start to see that in your everyday life. 
and then through having deep insight you see the arising and passing away of this mind and this body moment by moment and you understand deeply at that time that uh, you don't exercise control over that. <clears throat> so as this uh, understanding deepens there is the wisdom, the practice and the deliverance or an alternative uh, understanding of this is that they are entirely super mundane. The first is the right view of the path of arahatship. The second, the remaining seven path factors. So I think that that should say the first is the right view of the path of stream winning, not of all the uh, other uh, steps up to arahatship. So the first glimpse and then receiving the fruit of that. And the fruit of it is that one is no longer bound by the... Uh, the fetters that one was bound by, there's no doubt in the mind, there's no uh, misunderstanding of the true nature of this body and mind, there's no identifying with it as who we are, uh, there's no uh, belief in rites and rituals as a way of uh, uh, attaining the final goal. These are the, uh, the fetters that fall away at uh, stream winning and one is free of that, that doubt and that freedom is experienced as uh, something that is a, a things no longer arise in the same way. There's no longer that same attachment. That's, there's no longer that same clinging to the sense of self that one had uh, previously. Or the first is the vision of Nibbana, the second the path factors, the third the supreme fruit. So even the commentaries uh, can't... Uh, agree on exactly what this unsurpassable vision, unsurpassable practice of the way and unsurpassable deliverance is. But because the Buddha is talking about the arahat, we know that uh, this, uh, when it's unsurpassable vision, it's uh, the full liberation of the mind from any uh, remaining uh, attachment to this mind and body and that it's the culmination of the practice and it leads to the non-arising of this mind and body in any future rebirth. When a bhikkhu is thus liberated, and this is a passage which I think is a wonderful passage which is very um, uh, good for us all to remember, and especially at this time of Vesak, sometimes people might think that uh, you know these are traditional practices or only uh, uh, cultural practices of uh, born Buddhists or whatever. But in this uh, particular uh, sutta, we have the from the Buddha's own lips. When a bhikkhu is thus liberated, he still honours, reveres and venerates the Tathagata thus. And I mentioned the Tathagata on my Friday night talk. The Tathagata is the one who has accomplished this uh, path, the one who uh, has done it and so can uh, show us the way. The bhikkhu who's liberated, who's fully enlightened, still honours, reveres and venerates the Tathagata thus. The blessed one is enlightened and he teaches the Dharma for the sake of enlightenment. The blessed one is tamed and he teaches the Dharma for taming oneself. The blessed one is at peace and he teaches the Dharma for the sake of peace. The Blessed One has crossed over 
and he teaches the Dharma for crossing over. The Blessed One has attained Nibbana and he teaches the Dharma for attaining Nibbana. So even though enlightened ones still honour and revere the Tathagata, the Blessed One, because he has taught the Dharma, has crossed over himself and he's left the training for us to take up. When this was said, Sachika, the Naganta's son, replied, Master Gotama, we were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. A man might attack a mad elephant and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a blazing mass of fire and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. A man might attack a terrible poisonous snake and find safety, yet he could not attack Master Gotama and find safety. We were bold and impudent in thinking we could attack Master Gotama in debate. Let the Blessed One, together with the Sangha of Bhikkhus, consent to accept tomorrow's meal from me. The Blessed One consented in silence. And the point, uh, a point to make at the, this point, uh, at this stage is that although uh, Sachika was intent on uh, showing the, the Buddha to be wrong and uh, insulting in his uh, way of uh, boasting, that the Buddha uh, was not moved by his praise or his blaming. When he uh, praises the Buddha, the Buddha is also not moved. And in another passage elsewhere, the Buddha makes the point of saying to not only himself but to his disciples, if people praise or blame the Buddha, don't get upset and don't get exalted because I myself don't get upset or exalted because I know that it's uh, only praising or blaming these five aggregates. And uh, I, I understand that there's no one here no one person, no Buddha as such to uh, be praised or to be blamed. It's simply the five aggregates arising and passing away. And uh, so disciples of mine don't get upset if people praise me or if they blame me or if they praise the teaching or blame the teaching. And so we can see the equanimity that arises when we don't identify with these uh, five aggregates as who we are. And when people praise us or blame us and we don't uh, identify with these aggregates, then we don't uh, identify with that praise or that blame and therefore we uh, free ourselves from suffering. So Sachika wants to uh, invite the Blessed One to, together with the Sangha of Bhikkhus to consent to, to accept tomorrow's meal for me and the Blessed One consented in silence the traditional way. Then knowing that the Blessed One had consented, Sachika, the Niganta's son, addressed the Lichavis. Hear me, Lichavis, the recluse Gotama, together with the Sangha of Bhikkhus, has been invited by me for tomorrow's meal. You may bring to me whatever you think would be suitable for him. So he's inviting uh, the Buddha, but he's actually inviting the Lichavis to provide the dana. Then when the night had ended, the Lichavis brought 500 ceremonial dishes of milk rice as gifts of food. Then Sachika, the Niganta's son, had good food of various kinds prepared in his own park and had the time announced to the Blessed One. It is time, Master Gotama, the meal is ready. Then it 
Being mourning the Blessed One dressed and taking his bowl and outer robe, he went with the Sangha of Bhikkhus to the park of Sachika the Naganta's son and sat down at the seat made ready. Then with his own hands, Sachika the Naganta's son served and satisfied the Sangha of Bhikkhus, headed by the Buddha, with the various kinds of good food. When the Blessed One had eaten and had withdrawn his hand from the bowl, Sachika the Naganta's son took a low seat, sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, Master Gotama, may the merit and the great meritorious fruits of this act of giving be for the happiness of the givers. Agivesana, whatever comes about from giving to a recipient such as yourself, one who is not free from lust, not free from hate, not free from delusion, that will be for the givers. And whatever comes from giving to a recipient such as myself, who is free from lust, free from hate and free from delusion, that will be for you. So this is uh, the um, footnote says that Sachika still obviously considered himself to be a saint. He didn't uh, think he needed to go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha and he was still holding himself to be on the same uh, standing as the Buddha. But uh, the Buddha is uh, making the assertion that uh, because Satchika invited the Buddha for the meal, that whatever was offered uh, to the Buddha is uh, his meritorious reward. Whatever the Lichavis brought to Satchika so that he could offer it to the Buddha, they received the merit of offering to him. And in terms of... Uh, the merit that accrues from an offering, the purity of the receiver has an effect on the merit that uh, accrues to the giver. And as well as that, the uh, state of mind with which one gives also has an effect on the merit that accrues. But in this case, the Buddha is making the point that um, as Satchika invited the Buddha and arranged the dana, that whether he likes it or not, according to uh, cause and effect, he will receive the merit of that offering. Of course, the quality of Satchika's own mind will have an effect on that. And we uh, see in the next sutta, um, in, this, in the Majjhima Nikaya, Satchika coming again to debate with the Buddha, not quite with the same uh, uh, boasting attitude as in this sutta, but uh, still not convinced that the Buddha was... Uh, fully enlightened and knew what he was uh, that his teaching was the truth uh, a footnote in the uh, next sutta uh, has that uh, Sachika was reborn uh, in Sri Lanka at a time when the teaching had come to Sri Lanka and he became uh, a great disciple there became uh, fully un enlightened following the Buddha's uh, uh, teachings uh, as a monk in Sri Lanka that's the uh, commentarial um, explanation. But in this one, in this sutta and in the next, we see that Sachika was not convinced and did not take uh, refuge in the Buddha at, that at the time of this teaching. So uh, he's, it's not surprising that uh, people he today hear the Buddha's teaching and aren't convinced, or that even when we are 
convinced that the Buddha knew what he was uh, talking about, that he was fully enlightened, that we still can't quite grasp it to the point where we can apply it and become enlightened ourselves. So that's the end of the sutta. Does anyone have any questions or any comments? Right. Um, the question is, what if someone says they've been feeling really depressed all day, thinking about the past or a loved one that's died, and then they say, well, then I go out and shop and uh, go to the cinema, and then I feel happy, and so I do have control over myself. Uh, so I guess one of the things is that we can't convince another person, and sometimes we just have to... Uh, allow them to say what you know, they say without uh, uh, wanting to um, convince them otherwise. Uh, if we're doing it out of compassion and we see that again and again they dig themselves into a hole being depressed or whatever, um, maybe then we can just point out if you didn't have those things to resort to, would you be able to change that depression uh, at will? And... Uh, maybe we can just plant a seed to get them to reflect because all of the teachings are really giving us just something to start working with, something to start chewing over, something to reflect on. And we may hear it a long, long time and reflect on it again and again and it still doesn't mean much to us and then suddenly one day the penny drops because we have done the preliminary work by then. And this is where it becomes, uh, you know, all of the multiple causes and conditions. So just having heard the teaching however many times, we still may, may not be ripe for the teaching, but the fact that we've heard it is a, a new condition in our stream of consciousness and later on we'll meet with other conditions which allow that uh, seed to um, ripen. So maybe just asking them what would you do if you didn't have those other things. Or maybe you could ask them, well, did you invite the depression to come in? How did it come in the first place, if you have control? Do you like, you know, do you, do, did you want the depression? How did it come there? And then, oh, no, it just, you know, I didn't. The, so there's the lack of control there at the point where it arises. So there's various ways can just be planting the seed to get the person to think next time it arises, oh, where did this come from? Instead of just indulging it as, you know, I feel depressed today and I was thinking about such and such and then just building on the depression. But it's um, it's a tricky business for all of us to catch those things when they arise. Some things we, we really want to drop like a hot potato because we know from experience that they cause us suffering. But other things that arrive in the mind unasked uh, we indulge them because we like those ones. And so seeing that all of them are uh, arising according to causes and conditions, um, you know, we, 
we don't do that yet. Well, we haven't seen that yet. Yes, so saying that um, quite in, Satchika is quite impressive because although we had all these uh, different ways of uh, getting into argument with the Buddha, he just accepted it. And uh, maybe he realised that he couldn't um, uh, successfully challenge the Buddha and so the better part of it was to uh, just concede at that time. But we see from uh, the next sutta that he didn't he wasn't fully convinced, and he came back for another uh, another debate. Yes. 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 So he didn't he didn't resort to cunning ways; just changed the subject. Yeah. Yes, yes. In fact, it's a good point that uh, the Buddha said, if if you don't believe, um, keep questioning, and that's what um, Satchika is doing. It was the boasting at the beginning that was uh, the point of the haughtiness, but uh, certainly to keep questioning is uh, what we need to do, and that's why um, you know, we, we don't accept anything just because it's taught, but uh, take it away and examine it in our own experience that's why it's no good just hearing the suttas and saying oh yes I believe the Buddha was right unless we understand it well enough to go and investigate it in our own experience so we take one aspect of the experience of the khandas that the Buddha was talking about and the obvious one is the body because we're sort of so faced with that moment after moment so much of our time is taken trying to make this body comfortable and so that's the obvious one that we we see, you know, when do I fall into the trap of thinking this body is mine or thinking that it's me? And then we examine, you know, is it something that's really gross or something that's really subtle or something that in the past it was me when I was young and fit? Or is it going to be me in the future when I'm uh, over what it is, whatever it is that I've got at the moment that I don't like? And so that's that's how we we really have to ask ourselves the questions. That's, that's the questioning. It has to be not just of someone else, but asking ourselves in our own experience. That's where we take it deeper and it becomes more meaningful for us. So if there are no more questions, we'll... Uh, I'd just like to finish by sharing the merits of today's um, practice. So we'll just uh, just chant the sharing of merits. <coughs> and if there's any uh, one that you would like to particularly dedicate the merits of today's uh, class to, uh, particularly teachers or loved ones, please uh, just bring them to mind and wish them well, wish them the opportunity to practice for their own well-being. And when I say the merits made by me, I mean for everyone in your own heart, just uh, dedicating the merits that you've made.
May the merits made by me now or at some other time be shared among all beings here infinite, immeasurable. By rejoicing in this cause this gift of merits given by me May beings all forever live a happy life, be free from hate, and may they find the path secure, and their good wishes all succeed. So thank you for coming. Hope to see you on either Thursday or Sunday to celebrate Vesak in the traditional way.